0: Once we were dead, separated from God, but scripture describes a great mystery that moves us from death to life, a union between the created and the divine. United with Christ, we have an inheritance, we are redeemed, and we are restored from our brokenness but how do we experience this great mystery how do we get from life as we know it to union with the son of god and what does it mean to be found in christ well good morning again we are continuing our series in Ephesians this week, so I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians four. Uh, we'll be looking at the first half of that book. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones. It's on page five hundred and sixty-eight. If you didn't notice, walking, whew, I'll wait a sec. There we go. Uh, walking in today, we have a new church plant that is meeting over in our fellowship hall which is worth celebrating and rejoicing over. And we're going to continue praying with and partnering with the Good News Church of Egan. So if you come in, don't get confused or alarmed. They're going to be over there meeting uh, if you'd like to. We had hadn't preach here in July, and part of that was so that you guys could see him, see what he looks like, so you don't see this strange dude walking around the church going, what's he doing? How'd he get in here? So we will continue praying for, partnering, supporting that ministry, and I'd encourage you to be praying for this brand new church plant as they begin meeting today. It's an exciting opportunity. Well, today we're going to be looking at unity. And when I thought of unity this week, I was thinking of the fact that I played basketball in high school. Now, if you didn't know that, it it still remains my favorite sport. To be fair though to you, if you couldn't tell, that was 15 years and 40 pounds ago. So, basketball season is starting, at least the NBA, so I am a Warriors fan. But there is still something that bothers me about the team aspect of my high school basketball team. All of us had to wear the same color shoes. So the captains got to pick whether it was white or black for the year. None of us were allowed to do headbands or armbands. The thing I was most upset about is I could not grow facial hair. We were forced to look as similar as we possibly could. We were even forced to wear similar outfits on game day. But the part that made me most angry is that it all disappeared as soon as practice started. So if you didn't know, 15 guys make up the high school team. Only five guys can play at a time. and just. To be completely transparent, I was not a starter, which means I got to sit on the chair for most of the game. But for every five man drill that we did, guess the breakups of the teams? The starters versus everybody else. But the cherry on top was whoever won got out of running suicides for that day. So guess who despised the starting five? Everyone else. Now time I'm with my basketball friends from high school and this comes up, I still like right now, I feel myself getting worked up. But sorry, Noah, I've mostly worked through it today. <laughs> See when we think of unity, I think all of us immediately run to this external standard of conformity that we tend to view as identifying those who are united. They look alike, therefore they must think and act exactly the same. But it's a completely different ball game, pun intended to actually be a unified people, despite the differences that are going on around us. Like, just look around this room, and it doesn't take much looking to see that we are not the same. Yet we've seen through the book of Ephesians that these truths are that we are now one people. So how can we? What does it mean for us to work through and be unified despite all our differences? Well, if you have Ephesians 4 by now, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As you're seated, I invite you to pray with me once again. God, we thank you for your inspired and errant and authoritative word. We thank you that you continue speaking to us through your word and pray that as we study this passage of scripture that you would open our hearts, open our minds, and illuminate all the things that we need to see from this text. But above all, God, I pray that we as your people would be unified in love. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see a few different things about unity in this passage. The first is that unity means we are the same. So, Paul has been continuing to build up the same thought he has throughout this entire book up until this point, beginning with the word, therefore. Now, one of the easiest ways that I would recommend you study the Bible is to trace flows of thought throughout it. So, when you see the word, therefore, in a text, you are supposed to ask, what is it, therefore? It's these silly little tricks that will help you better understand, interpret, and then apply the Bible. So Paul has been continually building up on one single flow of thought through this book. Apart from Christ, Jew and Gentile, or really anyone, everyone throughout the world, are divided. But once they're brought from death into life, now they are a new people who can't be divided. Last week, I said that the prayer that Paul was talking about in the second half of Ephesians 3 serves as the hinge point to transition from the theological exposition to the implementation of those beliefs. If you're reading any commentaries, they will describe this as the indicative to the imperative. That's just another way of saying these, these, truths that, these things that are true going into how we now live them out. So a good way of summarizing all these things that Paul has been building up to is in verse 1. Walk worthy. You could translate this literally from the Greek into walk worthily. Now remember, we, we saw this idea of walking come up back in Ephesians chapter 2. Walking refers to your entire way of life, how you conduct everything that you do. But what do you think that it means to walk worthily? Well, up until this point, Paul has told us a few different things. In in chapter 1, verse 15, he said we should have love toward all the saints. In chapter 2, verse 16, he said that, that God might reconcile us to God in one body. We saw in chapter 3, verse 10, that the church is where the manifold wisdom of God is seen. Here, we see verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it's important to note that this unity that Paul is talking about, this transformed way of living, is not optional. Look at the second half of verse 1 here, of the calling to which you have been called. See, God has called us to live our lives in such a way that it is worthy of Him. Paul even talked about this again earlier in chapter 2, verse 10. He said, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, already in verse 1, we have a question for us. How are you doing at this task of living out the good works in your life that God has called you to that are worthy, as we see in verse 1, that are worthy of God? But Paul doesn't just stop here, though. And even my asking that question should force you to ask the next question, what does that look like in practice? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Start at the beginning, humility. Humility was not a virtue in the first century. It was actually described as unbecoming of a man, unless it was someone like demonstrating their lower status or or class to someone else. It would be the same today in our culture of someone encouraging you to be prideful. How would you receive that or like understand if someone said, hey, you are way too humble. You've really got to work on getting more prideful. That's what, that's what it would be like in the first century. Pride was seen as a virtue. Humility was seen as a vice. But in that context comes Jesus, who flips all of these ideas on their heads. So in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, "'Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.'" So when Paul here begins by saying we should be humble or lowly, he's telling us that we should be like Jesus. But not just humble, as we saw in, in Matthew eleven 29. I'm gentle and lowly. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about, humility and gentleness. What a countercultural idea, gentleness. I preached a whole sermon on this idea last fall in Philippians 4, 5, where Paul says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. So are you a gentle person in your responses, or are you known as more of an angry person? Maybe you've been in a conversation where you feel yourself getting worked up, like I get when we start talking about high school basketball, only to have the temperature drop immediately when someone responds gently. We've seen this. Proverbs 15.1 tells us, a gentle answer turns away wrath. If all of us together pursue gentleness first in our responses to each other, we would hardly even need some of the other reminders in this text. But almost to remind us that this task ahead of us is really impossible in our own efforts, he adds another one, with patience. I remember uh, joking with people that you always need to be careful when and how you ask God for patience because God will always provide the training grounds for you. And there have even been seasons in my life where this idea of trying to grow in my patience has been worked on me. I had one of those seasons in seminary where I, would, I was trying to practice the, the art of patience and slowing down. Uh, I have a tendency to just get busy and then just keep going more and more and more, stay up later, get up earlier, and keep pushing my way through. Uh, but I had a season in seminary where, where in order to practice this patience idea, I would intentionally get in the longest line in the grocery store, like look for whichever one was going to take the longest. Like, I generally prefer the self-checkout, FYI. Uh, at the same time, I was commuting to uh, seminary th- right through the heart of downtown Denver. So in Denver, there's mountains on one side. Uh, mountains are these like big rocks that you can't drive around. So there's really only one way to get through Denver. You can't, it doesn't like split into 35E and 35W. It's straight through the heart of downtown. I would in- intentionally stay in the right lane. Anyone that commutes understands just how painful that is. But as I've shared before, I'm, not, I'm still not a patient person, but I have seen God continuing to beat some of that impatience out of me. Like, I don't know anyone that is truly a patient person. There's always something that will get you worked up. Uh, my, my I, I've, a legend story in, in my family, my dad's dad, um, the, written on his tombstone is the word he cared. And I've, I've been told he was the most patient person that most people knew until it came to hog season. And as soon as, as the sows were, were starting to give birth to the little piglets, he became the most angry, like, upset person in the entire world. Everyone has something that makes them impatient. But Paul, unfortunately, doesn't just stop there. Notice this. He says, humility and gentleness and patience. If you get all those things, then you can move on to bearing with one another. But it's not just bearing with one another. Because if only it stopped there, we'd be okay. But he adds, in love. This is much more difficult. And this is a manifestation of what we saw last week in chapter 317, where he said, rooted and grounded in love. It starts back there in Paul's prayer, but then becomes an implication, a necessary implication here. And I think there's a tendency among all of us to look down at other people who aren't gifted exactly the same way as us. I remember as I was uh, growing up, I I was completely baffled by people who weren't musicians because music just comes really easily to me. Like, why are you having to work at this? You just sit down and play it. Or, Or having conversations with people who view themselves as more mature than they actually are and then looking down on other people for not being at their level. Dear friends, the more mature we get the lower level will be willing to go to bear with each other. So here we see in this text, the mark of maturity is how you handle immaturity. And and Paul even goes on here, leading us into verse 3, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Another way of translating that that some other translations used is making every effort. So, church, what are you willing to do to stay united together? I think the two most important words that you can learn in the English language are, I'm sorry. See, this unity that Paul is talking about here is not optional. It's not a nice tag on. It is a command. Jesus even talked about this when he was on earth, when he prayed for us. So if you read through John 17, it's referred to as the high priestly prayer. Jesus takes time in there to pray for you and me today. He said, I pray for those who would believe after me that they may be one. Yet, how quickly have you seen people leave church for a perceived slight? Now, I use that word perceived intentionally because often it's a projection of their own insecurities instead of being willing to bear with one another. Instead, what we see here in Ephesians, Paul is commanding us to make every effort to keep unity and to keep peace. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about these first three verses, but we need to keep going. So Paul continues to ground these traits in the same idea that he had been emphasizing in the first three chapters. Look at this long list of ones in verse 4. I summarized it like this. There is one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, and there is one God. So church, we don't get to determine who is a part of this body. God does. Just like none of you get to choose the family you were born into, God did. Now, despite the reality that we are now a part of the same body, this does not mean that all of us are just clones. Uh, think of, of the Star Wars prequels, which, let's be honest, were still mostly better than the Disney copies. Now, this is a bit of a spoiler alert if you haven't seen them, but you've had 20 years at this point. Uh, it's, kinda, it's also kind of given away in the title. Episode two is called The Clone Wars. So in that movie, the bad guys have created an army of clones to fight their battles, where every single one is exactly the same. But that's not how it works with God. We actually saw a hint of this two weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 10, where it said, Through the church, the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known. So the way that we as the church today are supposed to demonstrate our unity seems counterintuitive. And it is by expressing, demonstrating, using our differences. So the first bit, Paul has said, Unity means we are the same. Second bit here, unity is going to mean that we are different. So in verse 7, Paul is saying that that moment that we were brought from death into life, the Spirit gives us grace, a gift that comes from Christ. So notice this, according to the measure of Christ's gift, God gave us some kind of gift that is slightly different. Now, the next couple of verses are a little bit confusing. Paul uses a quote from Psalm 68, which I'll talk about more in Sermon Scraps tomorrow, because there's some uh, big debate about what Paul means, so this will just be a preview. But what Paul is doing is he's using uh, this quote from Psalm 68 as a way for Paul to talk about how, the way, Jesus fills us with his gifts. So, the means by which he fills all things is through his body, the church, all of us using our gifts together. So, in order to fill all things, look at the end of verse 10 that he might fill all things, he goes on to, verse 11, describe the various church offices that were functioning in the first century. So, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. We'll just work through those one at a time. First is apostle. If you just, like, woodenly and literally translate the word apostle, it just means a messenger. So, um, an apostle, writing in this context, is someone who is used by God to explain and bring God's good news of salvation found in Christ, could also say this is someone who is bringing and sharing and explaining the gospel message. Similarly, the next one we have is apostles, or sorry, prophets. At times, prophets, we, we, we saw this uh, even in the New Testament, prophets would tell future things, they would predict things that were going to happen, but usually and generally prophets are explaining what the gospel means and what it looks like to be obedient to God's will. Third is evangelists. Those are people who are uniquely gifted to share the gospel with any and everyone. Some people are uniquely gifted at this. I knew someone that was a a church planter that was unbelievable at this. Uh, There was one moment where where he was going from like a a lunch, no, it was was a meeting at church and then he had to stop and get a pair of shoes and then he was meeting another friend of mine for lunch and in between those two things at the shoe store he led the shoe salesman to Christ. Like, I don't know many people that have that gift, like, and that would happen day after day after day. If you have one of those gifts, don't waste it. Continue using it. And look for opportunities to share the gospel. Now, the last two, there's some debate about whether it is one or two offices that Paul is describing here, because there's a different conjunction. Anyone remember the conjunction function sign song uh, between the two offices that are described here? So, if you notice, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and that one's joined together by shepherds and teachers. So some have even speculated or translated this section here as teaching shepherds, to try to bring those two words together. But most people that I was reading, and I, I tend to agree with them, would argue that this is two separate and distinct offices. So a way of summarizing this idea is all pastors teach, not all teachers are pastors. Now when we, when we get to some of these words, uh, if you didn't know, the Bible that you have in front of you was not originally written in English. hate to break it to you. So, as words are translated throughout history, they they pick up some different nuances or meanings to them. So, this, this word that we use, pastor, today, is coming out of the Latin translation of the word that we see here for shepherd. So, shepherd translated into Latin is the word pastor. So, guess what we're referring to when we call someone today a pastor? We are tracing all the way back to this passage here and referring to them as a shepherd. So, in the first century, these specific offices were used, all five of them, not for themselves. Instead, these specific offices are given by God for one purpose. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, so often when we, when we talk about these offices in the church, we look for someone who is, has a charismatic personality or we look to their leadership ability when what God says we should be looking for is unless they are doing their job, unless they are succeeding at equipping the saints… They are failing at their job. So, brothers and sisters, let me be as explicit as I can possibly be with this verse. If I, as your pastor, if we, as your staff, fail at equipping our body, you need to call into question whether or not we're doing our job. Now, in a little bit, we'll get to what equipping looks like, but I feel and worry that there's a profound misunderstanding of what those who are called to ministry are supposed to do and what it's supposed to look like. I have a a dear friend who was working with his small groups at his church to begin working on a, a more robust prayer ministry. And he asked each of the individual small groups to come up front at the end of every service and and be willing to pray with anyone that had prayer requests that came out of the the service for the day. And one of those small groups emailed him back and said, We're not going to do that because what do we pay you to do? That's the wrong approach to have to ministry. Now, equipping the saints, uh, that word, or sorry, yeah, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, verse 12 here. That word ministry is the same word that was used to translate service uh, back in chapter three, verse seven. So Paul says, I was made a minister or a servant. So friends, listen to this. All of us are called to serve, to minister to one another. This is not, again, optional. We don't get to tap out of this. We all need to do our part because if we're not doing our part, then we won't build up the body of Christ. Now, one thing to talk about in relation to this is the competition game that we all play. I think there's a tendency to get upset that we're not gifted the same way as someone else, or even look down on someone else who is wired differently from you, like I did with music. But that is the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing here. I had this uh, realization come to me a couple weeks ago. Uh, I've, I'm now at the age where I can start listening to Adventures in Odyssey again, because my kids are listening to it with me again. The problem is my kids only wanna to listen to one episode, and I'm trying to expand my repertoire again. So there's one specific episode where uh, it's so I mean these were done in like the 90s so bear with me Um, they're talking about a story about a church putting on a a play like a big children's play like churches used to do and and the the theme of the play is the body so you have all these various people and and specifically it's about Mr. Foot and Miss Lips Mr. Foot's job was to carry everything around like make sure things were moved properly make sure everyone got where they needed to go Miss Lips job was to do all the talking well, Mr. Foot gets upset and decides to, to go get the other feet and go off into the, the world and do whatever uh, they want to do. They want to be the entire body. So in, in their pursuit of becoming the entire body, the feet walk up to this person who is homeless. Ask him how he can, if they've seen anyone who could use some help. And, he's, and, and he said, well, I, I mean, I've, I'm out of my luck. And they said, okay, well, I'm really sorry about that. If you, need any, if you think of anyone that needs help, let us know and they walk away. So they didn't have eyes, they didn't have mouth, like, they, they couldn't do everything that they were supposed to do. But we, today as a church, have a tendency to do that exact same thing. Like, a lot of these stories in <laughs> Adventures in Odyssey went way over my head when I was a kid, and I'm like, wow, that is really deep. <laughs> but I think there's a, there was a quote that I found, this is not from Adventures in Odyssey, that I think summarized this idea really, really well. So it's, it's from a, a theologian named John Voice. He says, since Christ is the giver of the spiritual gifts and spiritual functions, there is no place for human pride, as if the gifts were self-generated or in some way earned. Similarly, there is no place for envy, since Christ has gifted all in that in various and different ways. Now, one of the amazing things about all these gifts, though, is we go on and see that, that all these gifts actually have an expiration date to them. That's where we see unity means we are forced, we need to grow up. So, verse 13 says, begins until. That means that there's going to come a time where the body of Christ will not need to be built up anymore. There's going to come a day where I'm going to be out of a job because we're going to be with Jesus himself. But as long as we're on this side of eternity, that moment will not arrive. This is also meant to comfort us because that word until means that it is guaranteed to happen. This, this, the body of Christ will finally be perfected. It will finally be built up and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But there are three things about this maturity that Paul is talking about here. It is communal, it leads to unity, and it, there is a specific standard that we are aiming for. So communal begins the next two words we all. We're only as strong as our weakest link, which means all of us need to regularly be pouring into each other to help us grow into maturity. This is yet another reminder that we can't just look down at other people who aren't wired or gifted the same way, who don't have the same training or experiences, and instead we're encouraged to actually bring them along with us. Think of a passage like uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We'll be looking at that passage a little more fully in... Uh, november december Uh, but this should also remind us that we individually so we have this communal part we need to imitate me as i imitate christ but we individually also need to ensure that we're maturing not for ourselves as we so often view it but for the sake of those around us so individually we need to grow so that communally our body can continue to grow so the first is is it's communal the second piece is the unity attain the unity of the faith so our growth And our maturation, our maturing in Christ is meant to lead us into greater unity. So why is it that those who claim to be the most mature seem to be the most willing to separate and divide? Or even a more intense question, if God has actually called us to unity, we saw that in John 17, why are there so many denominations around the world? Well, a really quick, brief answer to that, unity, again, does not mean uniformity. Since God is so great, He cannot be completely understood by one person or a group of people. So, each denomination is going to emphasize certain characteristics of God better than others. That's why in Revelation 6, we see people from every nation, tribe, tongue, one culture cannot fully appreciate, understand, and demonstrate who God is. But secondly, don't discount the work of sin, even in the lives of believers. It never fails to surprise me the reasons people will use as an excuse to leave a church without being faithful to what Scripture has called and commanded us to do and be in our lives. Friends, let me plead with you. Don't let sin have a hold in your life. Don't be easily offendable and be quick to seek reconciliation. That's a marker of maturity. We as Christians shouldn't be a part of cancel culture because we're supposed to be a part of reconciliation culture. Now, one brief note on this maturity is it comes through knowledge of the Son of God. You are not going to mature without growing in your knowledge of Jesus. It is impossible and where and how has Jesus revealed himself to us? Through his word. This means growing in maturity, means growing in understanding of his word together. It's supposed to be done in community. Now, the standard that we're aiming for, he goes on in this verse to say, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So scholar F.F. F. Bruce has, I think, helpfully summarized this idea. He says, the glorified Christ provides the standard... At which his people are to aim. The corporate Christ, that's us, we as the church, cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. So, the glorified Christ who is sitting in heaven now is the standard. He is the measurement that we need to use to aim ourselves at. There are no other excuses and there are no other options. I had a professor in seminary who asked, Why do we so often miss this idea? We today have the same spirit living in us that raised Jesus from the dead. We today have access to the exact same power Jesus did. Why do we tend to be unaware of that reality, or forget to pray for that power to be demonstrated in our lives? And I think that sometimes we we too quickly jump to, "Well, he was God," or "That is impossible." But think of what Jesus commanded in Matthew five forty-eight. So the Sermon on the Mount, in the last uh, verse of chapter five, he says, "You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." So perfection is the standard. If you want to look for someone who is mature, look for perfection. That means that until Jesus comes back or He calls us home, we still have work to do. Now, this threefold aspect to maturity all combines to land us in verse 14. So that, the implication of this maturity that is going to become for, we may no longer be children. So this would be a natural byproduct of mature manhood that you saw back here in verse 13. Manhood versus children. Now, what is a description of someone who is still a child? He goes on, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Again, he's, he's listing three things here that lead people astray. The first is doctrine, every wind of doctrine. Now, uh, there are some aspects to, that, that uh, you may have heard, even heard the phrase, doctrine divides but love unites. Like, there, there is a sense that that is true. Doctrine is the standard that we are going to hold ourselves to, and so we need to separate from people who are claiming to be Christ but don't have the right doctrine. But then there's also a tendency for some people to overemphasize the wrong doctrines. When I was uh, in in, uh, college taking my Greek class, uh, my my professor used a a YouTube video. Uh, Pardon the language, but it's it's just from the the KJV. There is a KJV-only pastor who used a verse in the Old Testament that talks about men pisseth against the wall. Pardon my French. And he used that as a reason to say that because men pee sitting down today, we are being unbiblical. And that is why our culture is falling apart. How strong of a doctrine do you think we should be emphasizing that verse? If you go Google that phrase, you'll be able to find the video pretty quickly. It is interesting. So, there's doctrine. People are going to be led astray by that. He has an entire church that he is leading. The second thing he talks about, human cunning. See, I think there's a tendency for many of us to be way too clever with our biblical studies, making weird connections that don't need to be there. Uh, I had a member at a a church I was at who claimed to know the exact day Jesus was coming back. I think it's uh, October of next year, so we got a year. Uh, But the way he came to that conclusion was from numerology and astrology. Which one of those is theology? So he said he had this secret knowledge that he had stumbled across, and he was a little upset when I told him that's called Gnosticism, that was called a heresy in the first century. Like these, these are the things that people, like. They're in, in their own, they get stuck in their own heads and their own cleverness and then they claim to find something that is just not there. Lastly, the third thing that he talks about, craftiness and deceitful schemes. I think the best summary I could think of was this, is uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. Both of them actually claim to be Christians, but if you actually go and study what it is that they believe and are, are ascribing to, it is completely off any measure of what it means to be a Christian today. But I think maybe a more close to home example would be people who are legalists today. People who take every little finer point of detail in Scripture and say, therefore, you must do X, Y, live exactly how I do. Otherwise, you are going to be cast out from the church. So instead of, and we'll get to this in this next section here, instead of being children who are repeatedly led astray, what does Paul say that we should do and be? Verse 15. So instead of being these children, rather, speaking the truth in love. This in love idea has come up before already, but this is so hard to do. It's easy to speak the truth. It's nearly impossible to do it in love, especially over matters of doctrine, of beliefs that are essential to the faith. But how do we live in an understanding way with people who are at different stages of their maturity and their walk with the Lord? John Stott, I think, understood this well. It's a long quote, but I think it's worthwhile. He says, thank God There are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth, but sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. Both these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together, which should not be difficult for spirit-filled believers, since the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth, and his first fruit is love. There is no other route than this to a fully mature Christian unity. So speaking of the truth in love is the way God uses To help the church grow up into him. He is the one who is joining and holding the various members together, but then all these individual members are called to work properly together. Do you see this interplay between the individual and the body here? Overemphasizing one at the expense of the other will lead to dysfunction and unhealth. I think another commentary helpfully summarized this idea as well. He says The church is not an assembly of self sufficient individuals convening to discuss their similar experiences. Instead, it is an organism that grows as each part performs the task allotted to it. So as an organism, the church is continuing to grow and mature. It is building itself up in, what is the last phrase in verse 16? In love, again. Paul is once again reminding us that the, the singular marker of Christian maturity is love. So do you want to see how well you're doing at maturing as a disciple? Take a look at how you're growing in love. Do you want to take a stock of how we are growing as a church? Look at how we are growing in love. Now again, this is not love as the world defines it. We need to go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and see how Paul there and the Holy Spirit through Paul reminds us to build ourselves up in love. So Paul here in this text is reminding us that we must be united in Christ if we want to grow into maturity. But this unity is is demonstrated, is made visible through our diverse gifts, which all of us need to use to grow into maturity under the headship of Christ. And overarching all these things is love. Now, one of the passages that, that talks most explicitly about love is in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10. There, John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. So here he's even saying that if you, if you want to show or demonstrate that you are a Christian, like the entry point is loving. So everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. But this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Now, this love was demonstrated most visibly for us on the cross, which we get to celebrate the reality of that together this morning when we celebrate communion in a little bit here. We also see here, it says, God is love. That means that love starts and ends with God. Apart from His love given to us, we don't know what love is or what love looks like. In fact, love is the only way that we can be unified together. And one of the ways that we demonstrate that love, that unity that we have in this body is by celebrating communion. See, communion serves as a reminder of a a couple different realities. First, it's the reminder of the, as, as John said here, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. But then additionally to the the reality, the remembrance that we do of Jesus' sacrifice, it also reminds us of the unity that we're supposed to have with each other. We're drinking the same juice, we're, we're eating of the same bread. Now, even as we all have our own little individual elements today, thanks COVID, don't think of this purely in individualistic terms. Think of this as us partaking in a family meal together. So because it is a family meal, I would ask if you are not yet a believer, please don't celebrate participate with us, but instead participate in faith. Put your hope, your trust, your confidence in Jesus today. Don't let today pass you by. And for those of you who are in Christ, I'd encourage you. We're going to sing a couple more songs together. Please use them to contemplate the unity that we are supposed to extend to each other, the way that we are supposed to bear with each other in love, and use the time to pray to that end. We saw an example of how to pray for this last week. And finally, use the time to ready yourself to celebrate, to join together in remembering the reality that we, because of Christ, can now be united together in love. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a miraculous gift that despite our differences, despite our different backgrounds, our different upbringings, and even different maturity levels, we can still be unified under you as our head. God, I pray that we as your people and as your church would be found a walk worthy of the calling that you have called us. May we be found faithful to use all the various gifts that we have. May we do our job to equip the saints for the work of ministry. May we all build each other up in the body of Christ until the day where you finally complete and perfect us. God, we do long for that day. We long for the time where we can be fully and perfectly united to you and pray that we can continue building each other up, yet that all of that would be done with an ethic of love. May we, as as your church today, find ways and, and opportunities to bear with each other, to be slow to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, and instead speak the truth in love. God, I thank you that you perfectly demonstrated how to do that. I thank you that because you came to earth, you took on flesh, you set an example for us of what it looks like, of what it means, of how we can speak the truth and love to each other. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in what we do and what we say. Pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.